Well, good morning, Bridgeway Church. Uh, I just want to thank Joel again for having me here today um, and for that really cool bumper that he was able to find to go along with the sermon, but it is pronounced carry, not, I'm just kidding, you got it, guys, you got it, you got to laugh, come on. You're going to have to do, yeah, you're going to have to, it's going to take us all to get through this together today. No, I am so excited to be here. I am so excited to be preaching out of the book of Ruth today. Um, Like he said, my name is Carrie, um, and that's what we're here to do. We're here to talk about the book of Ruth, but I always like to get to know the person who is speaking just a little bit better before I do. So um, I have a picture of my cute family. Uh, My husband, Matt, and I have been married for 17 years. We lead Tribe Church together. Uh, Like uh, Joel said, we are down in Plainfield, Indiana. We're just outside of Indianapolis. We have two kids. Um, Jackson is 15, and Bailey, who's here today, is 13 years old. Um, Our kids do school at home, and that was the right choice for our family in this season of life. And people sometimes ask if we're one of those weird homeschooling families, and I think this picture will show you absolutely we are. Yes. Um, when one of our friends saw this picture, he said, I've never seen a picture so dilly before. And so if you've seen this photo, then you must know us pretty well. So at Tribe, we do a lot of what I call repeated speech. I even have a, uh, a specific color that I use in my very detailed sermon notes. You can check them out in the back after service if you're like, I wonder how detailed, very detailed sermon notes. I have a specific color that I use for common tribe sayings. And one of those tribe sayings that we use a lot is, we're going to preach the ideal, but we're going to live in the real. And at your church, you're about to start a series called How Rude, which is about dealing with mean people, uh, rude people, cheeky people, sassy people, disrespectful people, people who get under your skin and who don't treat you the way that you deserve to be treated. And so today, we're going to go in the opposite direction of that, and we're going to look at what loving people looks like when it's done well. We're going to look at what generational faith looks like. We're going to preach the ideal and try to live in the real. We're going to preach the ideal today in the hopes that it will help to prepare your hearts for the very real things that you guys are going to be discussing and dealing with in the coming weeks. And I have always been a really big reader. Pastor Tim Keller says that the secret to a good sermon is volume. Um, And so I I try to be a ferocious reader. And about five years ago, I was reading two books at the same time. I was reading Of Mess and Moxie by Jen Hatmaker and Wonder by R.J. Palacio. And Wonder is technically a children's book, and that was okay because I was teaching it. I was reading it with my fifth grade class because I was a teacher at the time. And uh, Wonder is one of the books that... um, Every person should read. If you haven't read it, you really should read it. But in in the book, one of Augie's teachers challenges each student to come up with a personal precept or a governing principle for their life. And being the absolutely adorable teacher that I was, I decided to have each of my students come up with their own personal precept. And in order to do this, I created an example from the other book that I was reading. And I think we have a photo right here. Yeah. And I chose the phrase, love people, love people. You've probably heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Or you've noticed that when people are rude to you, it's really easy to be rude right back to them. But have you ever really considered that the opposite is true? That loved people love people. So this was my personal precept. And if I'm being 100% honest, I just kind of grabbed it because I needed an example really, really quick. 
Um, but it became my personal precept. And one of the very first times that I preached at Tribe, I sort of wove it into a sermon. And it grabbed our people by the hearts. Because if you think about it, it's true. Loved people love people. People who've been taken care of take care of people. People who've been treated well treat people well. Loving people well is how we create generational faith. Some of you here today didn't grow up with generational faith, but you're creating it in your life right now. You're creating it for your children and their children and their children and their children. But some of you did grow up with generational faith. I'm a person who grew up with generational faith. My, uh, my grandfather died this year. He was 95 years old. He and my grandmother raised four children, um, and they all grew up and married and became leaders in their respective churches. My Aunt Jenny actually just preached her very first sermon a couple weeks ago. She's 70 years old, and she is still stepping out in her faith. Um, I texted her that morning. One of the things we say at Tribe to each other, people have been texting it to me all, all morning today, is give them heaven. And I texted her to her that day. So yeah, we don't, we don't give them, we give them heaven. Yeah, so I texted that to her a couple mornings ago. But my grandfather had 10 grandchildren, two of which grew up to be pastors, all of which are not only in the church, but are ministry leaders in our respective congregations. And there are at least 15 great children. I say at least because um, some of my cousins are still in the family building years, and you never know who might be pregnant at any one given time. And I am so excited to see what comes out of that next generation in my family. I'm a third generation church planter. My grandparents were part of a congregation that planted a church that still exists in Richmond and Indiana today. My parents were part of a leadership team in the 90s that started um, a church in Whiteland, Indiana, and my husband Matt and I are the lead pastors of our church. And so who knows what's coming in this next generation? Maybe Jack and Bailey will start a, uh, like a network or something, like wouldn't that be cool? And I don't want you to think that I am just here to brag about my awesome family because we are not perfect. Some of us have made some really big mistakes in our lives. But looking around at my grandfather's funeral this past May, I remember Matt leaning over to me and saying, all of this is because two people fell in love and they followed Jesus. And I can't help but be proud of what my grandfather and my grandmother built. They loved Jesus and, most, and, and even maybe more so than that, they loved people. They didn't love people more than Jesus, but because they loved Jesus, they loved people really well. And they taught their kids to love Jesus and to love people really well. Who taught their kids, my generation, to love Jesus and to love people really well. And now my generation is teaching our children to love Jesus and to love people. And so today I wanna, I wanna begin with the end in mind. The sort of faith and love that can lead to a great-grandchild writing something like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making it simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is uh, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than the honey from the honeycomb. By, the, by them your servant is warned, in keeping with them there is great reward. Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I encourage you this week to go back and read Psalm 19 on your own and reflect on the deep faith demonstrated through the words of David. This deep faith did not come from nowhere. It is a generational faith. It's the faith of his father and his grandfather and his great-grandparents. His great-grandparents, specifically his great-grandmother. David's great-grandmother is a story that's pretty incredible. It's a pretty incredible example of how love can change a life. So we're going to take a look at her story today. And it starts off with a famine. A famine that was so bad that it forced a family out of their town, forced them to leave their friends and their family and their neighbors and their land, forced them to be refugees in a new land, a land where their God was not the God. And this family was one of the lucky ones because they were actually able to flee instead of having to stay and starve and die. And they were also lucky because the mama of this family, Naomi, had done her job well. She had produced not one but two sons, an heir and a spare. That was the dream. And they packed up their sons and they headed from Bethlehem to Moab. And then after they've been there for a time, the unthinkable happens. Emiliac, the patriarch of the family, the husband of Naomi, dies. The very thing they were trying to avoid happens anyway. Naomi's widowed, but she still has her sons. And so she and her sons build a life in Moab. And when the time comes, her sons marry Moabite women. And they just continue to live their life. Seasons come and seasons go and years go by. And they must have been at least somewhat happy because they don't go back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem wasn't exactly near, but it wasn't very far. These people, they stay in Moab. And, and Naomi, she lets her son marry these Moabite women. And then about 10 years after that, the unthinkable happens again. Naomi's sons, Malan and Killian, die, leaving Naomi with nothing except two daughters-in-laws that her son had married. Actually, the unthinkable had actually been happening throughout those 10 years or so that they were married because Naomi's two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, were barren. They had no children. And this is absolute defeat for Naomi. She has no husband. She has no sons, no grandsons. She's a widow who's responsible for two widows. And all of these people are not young widows. All three of them are either past the point of childbearing years or they've been barren their whole lives and they're getting up there and that clock is ticking and it's not going away. Naomi has hit rock bottom. And so she packs up as much as she can carry and she begins the 10-day trek back to Bethlehem defeated. 
she's lost everything. All of her worst nightmares, the very thing she was trying to avoid has happened. It's all gone. Everything that had worth in her life has been taken from her. Her husband, her heir, her spare, they are all dead. And it looks like God is finished with Naomi. And Naomi, Naomi is finished with God. Naomi is furious with God. Like, are you allowed to be furious with God? Is that something that's even allowed to happen? I know it might feel wrong to be furious with God, but I bet you've been there before. Naomi is not feeling nice things toward God. And in fact, she tells people when she gets back to Bethlehem, uh, she says, stop calling me Naomi because that means pleasant. Instead, I want you to call me Mara, which means bitter. She tells people to greet her. When the people come back, they're like, hey, Naomi, how's it going? She says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? That is not mad at God. That is not irritated with God or maybe even angry at God. Folks, that is furious with God. She is furious with God and she's blaming him for all of the things that have happened to her. But through it all, Naomi loved her daughters-in-law. She would have been to them what the Celtic people call the Unakara. The Unakara is a true friend. It's a soul friend. It's a person who acts as a teacher and a companion and a spiritual guide. She is kind to them. She made sure that they were cared for and protected. She fed them. She comforted them when her, their husbands died. Do the scriptures tell us this? No. So how do we know that Naomi was kind and loving to her daughters-in-law? It's when we read about their behavior towards her that as they're leaving Moab bound for Bethlehem, just outside the city, she turns to her daughters-in-law and she tells them to go back to the houses of their mothers. She says, go find new husbands. And these girls just fall apart. They weep and they cry together and Orpah does as she is told with a kiss she heads back into Moab, back to the home of her mother, back to the God of her people, back to a life that she understands. But Ruth speaks these words. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates me and you. And if you're like me and you grew up in the church, um, you grew up being told that the book of Ruth is the greatest romance in the Old Testament, probably the whole Bible. And I think reducing this story to a romantic story is selling it short. The book of Ruth is a story of loyalty, it's a story of what happens when you get a glimpse of what life with God can be like. It's a masterclass in how to love people well and what happens when we do. 
We get caught up in the romance of the story and I think we miss the absolute insanity of these words because this is madness. We're gonna read it again. It doesn't make any sense. Like I know this gets read at weddings a lot and you may even have these words like over your bed or somewhere in your house. But when you read it again, don't think of like a bride and a groom standing at the front of a wedding. I want you to think of a mother-in-law and a young woman in the hot, dusty road around the Salt Sea in Moab, headed towards Bethany, Bethlehem. Do not urge me to leave you or forsake you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. I will leave it all behind to be with you. Where you die, I die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. We use these words at weddings, I think, because they're the best example of showing commitment to another person that we can find in the Bible. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people are my people, your God is my God. But again, Ruth isn't a bride at a wedding. She's a Moabitess, meaning she is part of the tribe of Moab. Moab was the son of Lot and his daughter. Ruth is part of a lineage that began with incest. This is a shameful heritage, especially to the Jewish people, and that is right where she's headed. As widows, Ruth and Naomi would have had no social status, no way to make money, no security. Ladies, you know what I mean when I say security? And going with Naomi means she's gonna have to adapt with, to new customs. She's gonna have to give up her gods, the way of life that she had completely. She's leaving her family. She's leaving everything she's ever known. She's gonna be homesick. Ruth is literally walking into a dangerous situation and we have to stop and think, what would make a person do something like that? And here's the harsh reality. It's probably not because Ruth had fallen in love with God. Naomi at this point is quite literally shaking her fist at the sky. Is God with Ruth? Absolutely. Is God for Ruth? More than she will ever know. Does God love Ruth? Yes, absolutely he does. But is it God's love that Ruth is running towards? Not, not really. She is running towards Naomi. She's running towards the way that Naomi treated her and her sons, that she's running towards the way her first husband treated her. She's running towards the way that Naomi loves her and has taken care of her. She's running towards the love that she felt around all of these people. And it's once she has that figured out that she can go on to start that relationship with God. My husband, Matt, will be the first one to tell you that it was meeting my family that first attracted him to Jesus. There was just a joy, no matter the circumstances, that he didn't see in his own life with his own family. And I know that that can't just be true of him because a lot of my aunts and uncles and cousins married people who came from families that didn't look like our family. But those people just saw something in us and they wanted to be a part of it. They saw God in our lives and how he works in our lives. And they wanted to be a part of it. And one of the things that a lot of couples in my family have that I love is that we have friends that feel like family. We have people who are so close that we sort of include them in our extended family. My kids were actually deeply offended when they found out that they weren't biologically related to Auntie Sue's. Like they were very upset. We have people who've latched onto us because they saw something in us that they wanted for themselves. Something they didn't see in their own lives, but when they saw it, they knew that it was different. 
Folks, as Jesus followers, we have something that other people don't. That same power that lived in Naomi, that elicited Ruth to say, do not urge me to leave you or forsake you. Don't let me turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord be, deal with me ever so severely if anything but death, anything but death separates you and me. That same power lives in you and me. And if you think that the people around you don't see it and hear it and feel it, you're wrong. What we say at Tribe is love people, love people. We write it on our walls and our wrists and our hearts and our shirts. And we don't you know what we might write it on in the future. We even have a couple people who've had it tattooed on their bodies. That's terrifying to me, but it's true. And we don't own the phrase, love people, love people. We try to hold everything at Tribe with open hands. So I made you a little graphic that you guys can have. This is the bridge version of love people, love people, or Bridgeway Church. Because you're like us. And because you're like us, you feel the same way about your people that we do about our people. And we don't ever want people to forget the powerful message that you are loved deeply, both by God and by Jesus and by all of us in the Jesus-following community in central Indiana. Our goal every week is to fill you up with love so that you have enough love to push out on the people around you, your family, your neighbors, anyone that you come into contact with. And again, please don't think that I'm taking God out of the equation here because God is the equation. God is the first and the last. We love because he first loved us. Without God and his love, there is no love for us to give. So let's try this really quick. Uh, raise your hand if you are here today because at some point in your life, someone either invited you to church or if you're like me and you just got brought to church like in a little pumpkin seat. How many people are here today because someone somewhere, look at this, it's all of you. Might have been your parents when you were really small, a friend from school inviting you again and again and again, your roommate asking you to come. And it might not be that you came to Bridgeway specifically, but someone invited you into a relationship with God. 95% of the people come to church for the first time because of someone else. It's especially true for people who come for the first time as adults. They came because they saw something in someone else and they wanted it for themselves. They saw a joy that couldn't be explained, a contentment that they wanted for themselves. They saw moms and dads treating each other in a way that they hadn't experienced before, and parents treating kids in a different way than what they had growing up. They saw strangers becoming friends that feel like family that we heard about this morning. They saw a community that was missing in their lives. And do you know what the response is when you see something like that? Still today, the response to that is, do not urge me to leave and turn back for you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. That's the response. That's the response. So how do we get to this point? What action points can we take? Can we put into practice in this season to get a love like Ruth's? It's gonna be quick and easy, I promise, okay? You need to connect with God and you need to connect with others. Connect with God and be intentional about coming to church. The average person attends church one out of every four weeks. And some of you are like, ouch, oh, that hits me right here. Like, how does she know that? That's, that's the average. It's gonna have to be more than that, okay? 
Be intentional about spending time with God both inside and outside of church. Be intentional about worshiping outside of church. Guys, get a Spotify account, they're free, okay? In study, there's all kinds of stuff on the Bible app where you can, I'm sure Joel has a million great things he could suggest for you. And in conversation with God, which we also call prayers. Connect with others. I love your table groups. Get connected to a table group. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to your family. For the love of God, talk to your teenagers, okay? Share meals with people. Shauna Nequest describes the table as the great equalizer, the level playing field many of us have been looking for. She says, people aren't longing to be impressed, they're longing to feel home. And I can tell you 100% that's true because I am not a cooker person and people still show up to my house all the time, okay? You do not want me to make you a meal. I will happily come preach anytime you want me to, Joel, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cook for you guys. It doesn't have to be perfect. At the end of the day, most people are like Ruth. They are just looking for a place to call home. They will run to that. They will cling to that, to people who feel like love, that una cara that we talked about earlier. And Ruth's story ends so well. It's a short book. It's just four chapters, but it's a page turner. I'm gonna sum it up here, but I encourage you to read it for yourself this week along with Psalm 19. Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem and with no way of getting food, Ruth begins to glean or like kind of pick up the leftovers after the farmers have gone through and picked up all the stuff in the fields. So she's gleaning in a nearby field that belonged to a man named Boaz. And Boaz hears what Ruth has done for Naomi, that she hasn't abandoned her. How she stuck by her even though it would have been easier to leave. And he gives them food. He sees that they're cared for. And eventually Ruth and Boaz are married And the 10 years barren Ruth achieves the unthinkable. She has a son, and she names him Obed. And Obed grows up with the faith of his father and mother and marries and has a son named Jesse. Jesse does the same thing, and he has a son named David. Yes, that David. King David. David who wrote the Psalms. David who slayed the giant. David who was said to be a man after God's own heart. David, whose lineage includes 14 generations later, a man named Jesus. Ruth, the Moabitess, Ruth the widow, is one of four women named in the lineage of Jesus. We have to know that part of David's unprecedented faith came from his once barren great-grandmother who saw something in her dead husband's mother that she just couldn't get past, that she just couldn't get over something that she had to be a part of. And that same power is alive today. It's here in Kokomo, Indiana. It's here at Bridgeway Church. But most of all, it is alive in each and every one of you. And I wanna end today by praying a blessing over you. That's um, a blessing for friendships and relationships from the book To Bless the Space Between Us by John O'Donohue. May God bless you with good friends. And may you learn to be a good friend to yourself. Journeying to that place in your soul where there is love and warmth and feeling. May this change you. May it transfigure what is negative and distant or cold within your heart. May you be brought into real passion and kindness and belonging. May you treasure your friends. May you be good to them. May you be there for them and receive all of the challenges and light and truth that you need. May you never be isolated, but know the embrace 
of your una cara. God, thank you today for this powerful story and thank you for loving us well. Thank you for seeing the whole picture, for the good things you have in store for every person in this room. God, thank you for their stories. Thank you for the people who brought them here today, even if they never knew that it was the seeds that they planted that got them here today. God, thank you for the seeds that are planted by the people in this room. Thank you for the people in their lives. I pray for the ones who came from generational faith that they would keep the faith of their fathers and mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers. And I pray for the ones that did not come from generational faith, that they would be the first generation of a faith that blesses many generations. Amen.